March 16, 9 a.m. Welcome to the City of Palm Coast Council meeting. Uh, before I call this to order, uh, I would like to say that today I'm going to be your chairman due to the fact that Melissa Holland, the mayor, won't be here. Uh, please join me with a hand to your heart in the Pledge of Allegiance. participation. Each speaker shall come to the podium and you'll have three minutes to speak. Please state your name and your three minutes will begin. Uh, you cannot speak about items at this time. You cannot speak about items in the agenda as you will have the chance to do so when the item comes up. All comments and concerns, someone here should be directed to me as I'm going to be the chair today. So we could start with the public participation. Please state your name to the record. Robert McDowell, Palm Coast. Between rimfire and rolling sands, I counted this morning 34, 34 brand new concrete slabs that had been put down on the west side of the street because there's no sidewalks on the left side. My questions are, how much does each slab cost the taxpayers? What is the life expectancy of the concrete? And who's doing the work? I just think that 34 slabs that had to be replaced within the last year, that's an astronomical amount of money. And that's only one block from rimfire to rolling sands. It's only one block and we had to replace 34 new slabs. Now I think, I'm thinking in the keyword, but I think the main reason why these concrete slabs are being not holding up is because we have borough or city vehicles riding on the sidewalks. And I don't know how much these little golf cart uh, city vehicles weigh, but they gotta weigh three or 4,000 pounds. So I think that either the concrete is of poor quality or it's not properly being installed. I mean, I came from the north and my firehouse was concrete floor. And I'm 70 years old and that concrete floor is the same floor that was put down 70 years ago. So, and that's just only one street. So. God only knows how many concrete slabs we've replaced. I know I've only lived here for five years, but there's gotta be at least, at least 100 or 150 slabs. So, like I said, I wanna know how much the slabs cost, who's doing the work, and what the life ex expectancy is of those concrete slabs, because maybe it's, we're not using the right material. It's not like they're being affected by weather, because. We don't really get cold weather. So if the city could get back to me, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Sit your name for the record, and you know, three minutes will begin. Janie Holly, Palm Coast. Uh, what was your last name? Holly. Holly, okay. I come to you again in regards to the ordinance already unanimously passed to install a gate at Slowway and 325. I have recently done my own traffic counts over the past few weeks, and these are my unscientific results. 22421, 10.43 a.m. to 12 noon. 48 vehicles, or one vehicle every 1.6 minutes. <coughs> 3721, 12.49 to 1.49 p.m. 43 vehicles, or one every 1 1.4 minutes. 315, 21, 108 to 208 p.m. 37 vehicles, or one every 1.62 minutes. This averages almost 
1980 census had the population of Pond Post as 2,837. The current population is over 94,000. You know, by 2030, we're going to probably be over 100,000 people. Pond Post isn't a sleepy little retirement area anymore. It's a city incorporated in by, uh, by a margin of two, and two to one in 99. As life moves on and the older citizens die, more people are moving in. These are not all retirees. They are younger couples with children looking for a nice, safe place to raise their family. Keeping access via slowway continues to hinder that safety. Installing the gated plan can go a long way to ensuring that we, the residents, are safer. There's someone I call Kubota Guy who makes daily trips to the neighborhood in a large truck with a trailer hauling a Kubota backhoe. During my time outside yesterday, he came through four times. This is only one example. I must stress the point again. I am home 99% of the time, and unless it's bad weather, I'm outside with my dogs while they play. I see the large vehicles. I hear the excessively loud radios, which is a new thing. I see the large revving of, I see the vehicles. I hear the revving of engines. I know more about the traffic through there than anyone else because I live with it on a daily basis. I don't know how many times I have read posts of people regarding car break-ins and porch pirates. County Road 325 is an easy escape route for anyone coming up from the south wanting to cause mischief. Installing the gate would eliminate that escape route. I further employ you to continue with the ordinance already passed and install the gate. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, next speaker. Car Palm Coast. Uh, I want to talk talk again about the traffic on Florida Park Drive. That traffic is just getting more and more harmful to the residents every day, and uh, it just seems like there's uh, inability to understand the really harm that it's doing to residents. We we're wearing masks to protect ourselves against the virus. Okay, that's virus is airborne. Over on Florida Park Drive, we have what I consider like a virus is the automobile fumes, the dust, and the, and well, the noise is not, not a, is airborne, but it's not entering our system. So we, we, we protect ourselves against the virus, but we're not going to protect ourselves against automobile fumes. That doesn't make a lot of sense. When all the studies that are out there shows that uh, leukemia, that leukemia in children is on the rise, and part of that is that it's already been discovered that part of it is doing due to automobile fumes. So why do we want to keep uh, Florida Park Drive so congested with traffic? Over 8,400 cars per day, three million cars per year. That's about one-tenth of the population of Palm Coast, if it's 80,000. So we got a lot of, lot of uh, traffic on that road. When I asked the Sheriff's Department about the uh, tickets and stop, you know, stops and everything, if, if I'm reading it right, it seems like Florida Park Drive's got one-fifth the tickets of Palm Coast. Why? In one neighborhood? I hope I'm wrong. You can check those figures with the sheriff's department. But the new scientific studies shows there's nanoparticles, and these nanoparticles get into your lungs and travel in your blood and attach to organs, causing problems. And so it damages the immune system. And while we got more viruses and things coming in, we would like to protect us with some kind of mask other that that is not that you wear, but somehow to reduce the traffic on Florida Park Drive. It says in, uh, I'll read this real quick if I can, but it's, it says that the most damage is in 300 to 500 feet of homes. We're 60 feet from the roadway. So do something to protect us, please. Thank you. 
Thank you for your comments, Mr. Farr. Next speaker. Having none, anybody on the Item E, minutes uh, for March 2nd, 2021, business meeting and March 9, 2021, workshop. I'll entertain a motion. I will make a motion to approve the minutes for our March 2nd and March 9th meetings. I second it. Those in favor? Aye. 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 Anybody against? Next item, proclamations. Uh, I'm going to ask Councilman Nikoufis to uh, read the proclamation regarding uh, Equal Pay Day. Any representative here? Good morning, Vice Mayor, Council. Good morning. Whereas more than 55 years after the passage of the Equal Pay Act, women, especially minority women, continue to suffer the consequence of unequal pay. And whereas, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, women working full-time, year-round, typically earn 81.5% of what men earn. And research by the American Association of University Women show the gender gap is evident one year after college graduation, even after controlling for factors known to affect earnings, such as occupation, hours worked, and college major. And whereas, according to a graduating to a pay gap, a 2012 research report by the American Association of University Women, the gender pay gap is evident one year after college graduation, even after controlling for factors known to affect earnings, such as occupation, hours worked, and college major. And whereas in 2009, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was signed into law, which gives back to employees their day in court to challenge a pay gap and now we must pass the Paycheck Fairness Act of 2021, which would amend the Equal Pay Act by closing loopholes and improving the law's effectiveness. And whereas, according to one estimate, college-educated women working full-time earn more than half a million dollars less than their male peers do over the course of a lifetime. And whereas, nearly five in 10 mothers are primary breadwinners in their households, and nearly two-thirds are primary or significant earners, making pay equity critical to families' economic security. Whereas fair pay equity policies can be implemented simply and without undue costs or hardship in both the public and private sectors. And whereas fair pay strengthens the security of families today and eases the future retirement costs while enhancing the American economy. And whereas Wednesday, March 24th symbolizes the time in 2021 when the wages paid to American women catch up to the wages paid to men in 2020. Now therefore be it proclaimed that the City Council of the City of Palm Coast does hereby recognize March 24, 2021 as Equal Pay Day in the City of Palm Coast and do hereby urge all citizens to recognize the full value of women's skills and significant contributions to the labor force and further encourage businesses to conduct an internal pay evaluation to ensure women are being paid fairly. Adopted this second day of March 2021, City of Palm Coast Vice Mayor Eddie Brancino. Before I go into the next proclamation, I just want to say that I neglected to uh, inform the speakers that uh, uh, special Mr. McDonald, Mr. Carr, and Mrs. Alley, that uh, see our uh, city manager in regarding any questions that you have in this, because he probably have the answers. Most likely he's going to have the answers. Uh, I would love to meet with those two residents and give them updates as to where you are on those issues and then answer specifically Mr. McDonald's question. Thank yes, you. Thank, thank you. you. And once again, I apologize for neglecting to do that. Uh, F3, a proclamation regarding a mul multiple myeloma awareness month. And uh, Mr. Barbosa, you need to start time. Morning, Vice Mayor and Council. Multiple myeloma, the second most common blood cancer worldwide and the fastest rising hermatologic cancer is a disease in plasma cells in a bone marrow. It is called multiple because the cancer can occur at multiple sites. And in the United States, life expectancy for those who are diagnosed with multiple myeloma 
ranges between four and 10 years, and with close to 13,000 people having lost their lives just this past year. And still with the challenges of applying therapies that include combinations of chemotherapy, radiation, and stem cell transplants. There is no, there's no known cure for the disabling for, of cancer and for the past seven years. Ms. Hack and her family have advocated for the city council to annually recognize March as Multiple Mayeloma Awareness Month. Even as Jen Hack lived her most beautiful life until February 2020, she courageously continued to provide comfort and kindness as an ambassador for Palm Coast Multiple Mayeloma Support Group and her warrior-like participation in five experimental clinical trials made her a pioneer for guiding experts to see to achieve an early diagnostic implant that most effective and safety treatments for myeloma patients. And thanks to people like Jenny Hack, Palm Coast is continually committed to increasing awareness of multiple myeloma and encouraging private efforts to enhance research, funding, and education programs. By the City Council of the City of Palm Coast, Florida, that the month of March 2021 be officially designated as Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month in the city of Palm Coast. Thank you. Anyone here who received this award? This? No. Vice okay. Mayor Brancrino, just on behalf of the family, because I have grown to know Mrs. Hack and her family for the past seven years, they greatly appreciate the continuing support from city council. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tell the family thank you very much. I will. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Agenda item G. Uh, G4, a resolution approving the comprehensive annual financial report for the fiscal year ending September 30, 2020, as presented by James Moore and Company. Uh, yes, just was going to introduce you. Thank you, Honorable Vice Mayor. Uh, we have a, the presentation of the CAFR this morning, Shannon Boone, our Chief Accountant from Finance, uh, and a presentation from James Moore and Com, James Halloran and Webb Shepard uh, will be here to present, or will present the uh, CAFR today. Ahead. you can start your presentation. All right, well, good morning, Council. Uh, this is James Howard with James Moore and Company. Uh, glad to see all you guys. Uh, enjoyed our one-on-one -on -one meetings uh, last Thursday and Friday, so thanks for taking the time to do that for us. And of course, Shannon is here as well to answer any questions you may have on the Comprehensive Annual Financial Report. You know, we as your auditors are your independent <coughs> auditors. And I'm actually going to turn it over to Webb Shepard. He's an audit director with our firm and worked on your engagement for a number of years. And uh, so he's going to do the primary presentation today. And then, of course, uh, any questions or anything you want to ask us after the presentation, we'll be more than happy to do. So take it away, Webb. Thank you, James. Good morning, Council. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to serve the city and an honor. Uh, so without further ado, and my name is Webb Shepard, for the record. I'm a director with James Warren Company. And without further ado, we'll dive right in. Um, can I get the next slide, please? So I'm going to walk you through our independent audit reports with the emphasis there on independent. As James stated before, we are independent of the city. We're independent of management. We don't work for the city's management. We do work for city council. So we like to emphasize that point. Uh, the, the first report there in the first bullet point basically states that we take a top-down approach to auditing your financial statements as prepared by management. Uh, it discusses our independence. Like I said before, we work for city council, not for management. Our responsibility is to form and express an opinion that your financial statements are presented fairly in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. The uh, next bullet point there is what we call the internal control report. It's the one that's required by government auditing standards. And it discusses a, a number of things. And I'm sorry, I'll go back to that first bullet point. There was an unmodified opinion, which is the best opinion that we can provide. That is the report that you want to see. That's the opinion that you want to see on that report. So the, the next report there is the internal control report required by government auditing standards. It discusses internal control that we consider internal control, but do not offer an opinion on the operating effectiveness of your internal control. 
So there were no material weaknesses in the internal control that we identified. There were no material instances of noncompliance that we found during our audit. The third bullet point there is the federal single audit report. That is required any time you have in excess of $750,000 in either state expenditures or federal expenditures. So you all had a little more than $5 million this year. That would do the CARES funding and the FEMA generator program. So you had a little more than $5 million a year. So you were required to have a federal single audit. And it's called a single audit, but basically it's a separate audit over those expenditures and those programs. During that, we found no material instances of noncompliance and no material weaknesses in internal control. So next slide, please. The next one there is the management letter, which is required by the Auditor General. Basically, the AG requires us to look at certain things, primarily your financial condition assessment and other key metrics. We had no comments there and no exceptions. We'll discuss the financial condition assessment a little more on the next slide. But basically, there were no exceptions there. And again, that's the report that you want to see there, the best one that we can provide. The second bullet point there is the investment examination report. And those are the page numbers throughout here. We have them listed in case anybody wants to go to the CAPR and find those reports. They're listed here and the page numbers correlate with that. So in the investment examination report, basically we had no comments. And that report basically states that you're in compliance with specific investment policy statutes. The third bullet point there is your affidavit on impact fee compliance. That is basically management attesting that they're accounting and reporting on impact fee collections and expenditures. The last one there is discussing the CRA audit, which was the first time basically the state is requiring us now to audit or requiring you to have an audit performed on the CRA fund. We've always included the CRA fund as part of our financial statement audit. But now we have to audit it separately. So the CRA now has its own set of separately stated financial statements and all of the same reports that we're discussing here. So we had no comments and no issues. So all of the reports are basically the same as the ones we're presenting here for the CAPR. So the next slide. Thank you. A little about your financial health. All funds are in compliance or exceed the fund balance policy. And that's discussed in note 17 to your financial statements. Your overall financial condition assessment as required by the Auditor General. So they require us to basically take your financial information and plug it into a spreadsheet that they provide. It's a benchmarking spreadsheet. And it has basically about 25 key indicators and key metrics in there. So the city came out as inconclusive this year, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Inconclusive really just means average. You're roughly right around the middle there. So the three ways that it can shake out are favorable or inconclusive or unfavorable. So you're not favorable or unfavorable. They call it inconclusive, which really just means more like average. The next slide, please. The general fund there on page 41, a little about the different components of your fund balance. Basically, the components of fund balance in the general fund are non-spendable, restricted, committed, assigned, and unassigned. Mostly comparative there, except for increases in assigned and unassigned, which are mostly due to some projects that you all put on hold when COVID hit earlier in fiscal year 2020. And then you had some unexpected funding due to the CARES Act with the public safety salaries. There was about $1.5 million that came in due to that. You did have some planned property taxes increases. So between the increase there and the 3.3 in committed and the 3.3 in assigned, it's basically about 3.4 in expenditure savings due to some projects put on hold, 
and those other increases that I just discussed. The committed fund balance, that's basically your disaster reserve, and the assigned fund balance there, that's you all sort of setting aside that money for use in next year's budget for those projects, basically. So Crest is pretty comparative year over year. And we'll move on to the next slide. We like to go over the general fund being the primarily used fund in the city's financial statements there. The fund balance policy that you all have set is 10 to 20 percent of next year's budgeted expenditures. So we like to highlight that basically at year-end 2020, you all were at 29 percent. So you're a little above the fund balance policy, not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just that the fund balance policy is a decision of the city council to basically have some guidelines there. So with those increases that we saw, that's not unusual to see that. So just like to highlight that point. Move on to the next slide. A little about your business type funds. We look at the unrestricted net position because your business type funds don't have the same categories as your general fund with the assigned and committed. So most of it is held in unrestricted except for the restricted parts of it. But the unrestricted is basically the amounts that are available for use to meet your current needs. So mostly comparative here in all of your proprietary funds except for the increase there in the stormwater fund, which again you all are planning for future projects, some system improvement, and some equipment purchases in the upcoming years. So that's what that increase is there. We'll move on to the next slide. A few highlights from this year. There is a $3.3 million deficit in the Old Kings Road Special Assessment Fund. That is basically the initial cost of that project carrying forward from prior years when they originally set up that project. Basically all those expenditures created this deficit in the fund. Now it is shrinking every year by a little bit. And if all goes as planned, it will continue to shrink until eventually it will dissolve. Along with that, or basically along that thread, the advances to other funds is discussed in Note 8 and further discussed in Note 15, which is the Old Kings Road Special Assessment Fund that borrowed money from the utility fund. That was originally almost $5 million. And again, that is the same. It continues to shrink every year as that note gets paid down or that advance gets paid down. The long-term debt of the city is discussed there in Note 10. In the current year, you all had $5.4 million for infrastructure improvements and equipment in the stormwater. And that was funded by two new revenue notes, 2019 A and B. In the utility fund, you all had that expansion design started. And that's currently being drawn down. The SRF funded about $300,000 of what will be the $1.4 million loan. But overall, the debt of the city decreased about $3.4 million. The subsequent event there, you all refinanced 2016 and 2017 bank loans for a total savings there of $2.5 million, roughly thereabout. And I'd like to say congratulations on your Fitch rating. You all went from A-plus to AA rating, which is no small feat and really a testament to your finance department and the sophistication of your financial statements and your CAFR. That really is a wonderful achievement for your finance department. So good job to Shannon and team and Helena. And congratulations. And we'll go to the next slide. A few more highlights for the year. The retirement plans is discussed there in Note 11. The volunteer firefighters plan has, it carries with it a net pension asset of $1.6 million. The Florida retirement system has 10 employees, and that carries with it a net pension liability of $3.1 million. And then basically the rest of your employees fall into the defined contribution plan, which is a pay-as-you-go 
type plan, and that carries with it a zero net pension liability. And we'll move on. So these are just a, a few of the additional services that we offer, so please keep us in mind if you need any assistance. And again, we appreciate serving the city. It's an honor and a privilege, as always. Thank you very much. And we'll move on to the last slide for any questions. Oh. By the way, who's that guy in the picture? <laughs> that was a joke that we had there. Okay. Thank you for your presentations. I'll bring it back to this body. Uh, does anybody have any questions? Uh, I'd just like to comment. Thank you for the extended time that you were willing to give me to be able to go over uh, everything. And uh, our finance department, thank you to Helena and Shannon and the overall um, just tendency to always be looking at every way that we can save money. I think the refinancing of our long, longer-term notes this year with the ever-changing equity markets was uh, tremendous, and I think that um, they really deserve a hats off. So I just want to say thank you to uh, our finance department, and uh, thank you again for your guys' time that uh, you spent with me. You're welcome. Anybody else has any comments? Yes. How would you say our city's team is doing? When you say in team, do you mean just from the finance side, or what exactly are you referring to as team? From all the stuff that we w just went through, all the numbers. Uh, well, from a, from a finance side, you guys do very well. Uh, you're, I mean, you're not many cities of your size are one preparing their own comprehensive annual financial report. Uh, the timing of when you're able to produce that financial report, especially with COVID this year, probably more than 50% of our governments are at least one to two months behind. On where they typically are on uh, gathering their information. So you guys transitioned very well to a, to a COVID kind of remote workforce at times. And that's kind of part of your, your city has some advantages being a young city, uh, you know, just established in 99, you already had invested heavily in your IT technology side. And uh, so that enabled you to make that switch very seamlessly for, you know, for your employees uh, finance side. And I'm assuming probably in some of the operational areas as well. So that's so, so, so that's unusual from what I'm seeing this year you know, with our other clients. Uh, and also, um, tell the people uh, what makes Palm Coast so good is that we are uh, zero percent debt free. You are zero percent debt free, correct? In your governmental side, so you have debt in your utility fund, in your enterprise fund, so your utility water and sewer, as well as stormwater. Uh, which are your enterprise funds, which operate more aligned with the business based off charges for services, and you do have debt related to your CRA. But there's no general obligation debt. Um, as we, I don't remember if I talked with you about this, but it's very rare for someone to fill the city hall of your nature and sophistication um, in the last couple of years and have no debt from that. So, the, so that's, that's an unusual thing. We, we don't usually see most governments able to do that. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Who's the number one city in Florida? <laughs> Probably everyone will say wherever they live, right? Thank you. I just want to thank you folks for the time you spent with us last week and answering all my questions last week, and I greatly appreciate it, um, and I'm satisfied with everything that you've presented. Thank you. Welcome. Before I take it to the public, uh, I just want to ask you a question. Um, I'm glad to hear that you just said yourself that not many cities, not many cities are in our shape. Most of the questions I had, uh, they, you already answered them. Uh, the, one of them was, are we financially sound study? We are sturdy and financially sound. Uh, like I told you, I was going to ask you this question. About how many clients do you have here in Florida? Uh, currently, we audit uh, about 75 different governmental entities from cities, counties, special districts, um, whether it's, you know, water management districts, you know, we do St. John's, Southwest, Northwest, and then uh, various county cities as well. Uh, on your travels, if I may, um, when you do all these audits, let's say you find anything unethical or fraudulent or corrupt. Would you inform the council about that? Yeah, our, our, the, the process we go through from an audit side, it depends on the level of where that uh, fraud or, or instance occurred. So if it happened at more of a staff level, we of course would go to that department head and then all, 
once we discussed with that department head, and we would also then discuss that department head with the city manager and then ultimately the council, depending, is typically the process. You always go one level above from where the fraud instance might have occurred to discuss with those people as well. Have you found any of that here in Palm Coast? Audit testing revealed none. Thank you. I'm going to bring this to the public. Any comments or concerns regarding this matter? Hearing none, do we have anybody bringing it back to this council? I understand the motion to approve this resolution. I'll make the motion to approve this resolution. I'll second it. All in favor? Aye. Anybody against it? Item G5, resolution of the, my glasses, approving the Culbert Lane Lending PU determination. Do we have a presentation? Yes. Thank you. No, sir. This is Ray Diner, Deputy Chief Development Officer. This item, this resolution is related to actually the second read for items H6 and H7. And it's a cleanup item, basically. You know, the rezonings that were approved at first reading at the first council meeting would take care of it. But this is more of record keeping that our attorneys like us to do a resolution because of one of the parcels was zoned PUD. And mainly this terminates that PUD development agreement. So nothing new since the last time we brought this up? No, sir. Anything you want to add to this, Mr. Morton, at this point? No, thank you. Okay, so any questions, comments, concerns? Let me take it to the public. Anybody has any questions? Anybody in there? No? So I'll bring it back to this and I'll entertain a motion to approve this resolution. I'll make a motion to approve this resolution for the Culbert Landing Spud termination. I'll second it. All those in favor? Aye. Anybody against? Okay, the resolution passes. Okay, now item H, ordinance, second read, Mr. Certainly, Mr. Vice Mayor. This is an ordinance of the city of, the city council of the city of Palm Coast, Florida, providing for the amendment of the official zoning map established in section 2.06 of the city of Palm Coast Unified Land Development Code, amending the official zoning map for 156.6 acres, more or less, a certain real property described as part of tax parcel ID number 312-31-40-01010-0150, generally located on the west side of Culbert Lane, approximately 28 miles north of Moody Boulevard, and more particularly described in the attached exhibit A. We're rezoning from master plan development or MPD zoning district to single family residential one SFR1 zoning district and preservation PRS zoning district, providing for conflict severability, providing for effective date. Council, Mr. Vice Mayor, this is the second reading of a quasi-judicial matter. As such, if any of you have had any ex-party communications on this matter since the first reading, those should be disclosed at this time. Anyone? No. Mr. Ratchman, shall we at the same time present H7? That's up to staff. Do you want to present these at the same time? No, that's okay. We can do one at another. We don't have a presentation. There was no additional information added from the last council public hearing where this item was unanimously approved. This is a rezoning from PUD to our conventional zoning of single family residential one and preservation. All right. Then, Mr. Morton, do you have anything to add to this before I bring it to this panel? Nothing new to add. These are just coming back for the second reading. Thank you. Any questions, comments, concerns in here on this matter? I'll bring it back to the public. Anybody in the public wish to comment on this matter? Hearing none. Morning, sir. State your name for the record, and you'll have three minutes after this hearing. Chris Martin. I was just wondering, when I looked at this in the past, it seemed like there were quite a lot of houses. I think it's like 500 or something in all. Has provision been made for proper drainage, particularly given the problems in Flagler with flooding before? Also, is there not any concern with Flagler and Palm Coast and Bunnell? 
all becoming one big blob like kind of Daytona and Ormond are and you know it's, it's, it just seems that, that part of the charm of Flagler particularly is that it's kept kind of reasonably small and it just seems there's this, there's this drive to develop every last bit of space and as I say logistically there may well be problems with flooding and this is going to exacerbate it obviously uh, I know there's obviously incentives for having more housing with more taxes and stuff but you know I think there needs to be a balance with the infrastructure um, particularly with roads and services and I don't I don't see that this balance is always t is taken into account. So that, that's just my only point. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Olson. Uh, anybody else has any comments or concerns regarding this matter? Mr. Tainer, would you like uh, to? Yeah, that's a gr great response. Again, this is we are at the uh, zoning level, kind of at the 35,000 foot level. Um, this property actually is preserving over 40% of the site. So a lot of the houses um, or the single family homes that will be constructed in the future will be uh, not impacting those wetland resources. Once the zoning, if the zoning is approved, it goes through the subdivision process where we have uh, not only city staff, but the St. John's River Water Management District and other agencies in Flagler County, because that's their road on Culver Lane, will all be looking at it from a technical level and as as council members know we have probably one of the highest ISO ratings for floodplain management in the state of Florida um, and we take it very seriously to get these houses out of the floodplain make sure we have capacity and stormwater capacity and transportation analysis is done at that technical level as well so thank you Mr. Tyner I hope that answered your question uh, Mr. Molson thank you very much uh, any other speakers regarding this matter Anybody out there? I'll bring it back to this uh, panel and I'll entertain a motion. I will make a motion for ordinance 2021 application 4610. I'll second it. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Anybody against? Motion passes unanimously. Uh, item H7. Yes, Mr. Weissmeyer, this is the companion ordinance. Again, second reading of this quasi-judicial matter. The title of the ordinance is as follows. An ordinance to the City Council of the City of Palm Coast, Florida, providing for the amendment of the official zoning map as to established in Section 2.06 of the City of Palm Coast Unified Land Development Code. Amending the official zoning map for about 136 acres, more or less, so certain real parties described as part of tax parcel ID number 312-31-4001-010-0160. Generally located on the west side of Colbert Lane, approximately one and a half mile north of Moody Boulevard, and more particularly described in Task Exhibit A, from single family residential SFR1 zoning district to single family residential SFR1 zoning district, and preservation PRS zoning district, providing for conflicts, favorability, providing for an effective date. Like the last item, Council, Mr. Vice Mayor, this is the second reading of a quasi judicial matter. So if there have been any ex parte communications that any of you have received since the first reading, those should be disclosed at this time. Anything displaced? I don't know. None? All right. Uh, any discussions in this matter? If I may. Anybody would like? No. I'll take it to the public. Any, uh, anyone from the public who wishes to discuss this matter? None? Right. I'll bring it back to this uh, body and entertain a motion. I will make a motion for the ordinance approval. I'll second it. Those in favor say aye. 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 Anybody against it? Okay. Agenda item I, consent agenda. Uh, items, excuse me for a second. More than one page. Eight through 13, go. Mr. Vice Mayor. There you go, eight to 13. I was looking at the wrong page. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Eight to 13. Does anyone? Here wants to discuss any 8 to 13 consent agenda. Anyone has anything to add <coughs> here? Nobody. I'll take this to the public. Anyone in the public who wish to talk about the consent agenda? Uh, items 8 through 13. One. Anybody on? I'll bring this back to this uh, body and I'll entertain a motion to approve the agenda items 8 through 13. I'll make that motion. I'm sorry. I second it. Okay, those in favor say aye. 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 Those against? None. So it passes unanimously. 
looked at you not expecting it. Yeah, I spooked me. <laughs> All right. Public participation, item J. Uh, anybody from the public that wishes to speak at this point, you have three minutes, uh, and then we'll start with your name. I would like to have uh, the staff ready to answer any of the questions that I won't be able to. Uh, so please pay attention to the questions if you don't mind. So, so will I. You could proceed by saying your name, ma'am, and then after that you have three minutes. Hello, I'm Carol Brassfield. I'm concerned about using our money for a pickleball arena or stadium. I believe this kind of spending should be brought to a vote from the citizens of Palm Coast through a citywide um, election. We also need to recruit corporate sponsors to help provide financing instead of using taxpayer money. Um, many of these Pickleball arenas all over the nation are falling into disrepair because people lose interest in it or move on. Um, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thanks for your comments, ma'am. <coughs> Next speaker. Hi, Chris Martin. Yeah, um, I heard recently about this pickable thing as well, including the stadium, and I heard an estimate of possibly 17 million that this is going to cost. I mean, that's, that's outrageous, really. I mean, considering Flagler was able to do four courts for 100,000 or so. I mean, I would, I would suggest rather than trying to make a big centerpiece like was previously tried at the European Village and is now laying in disrepair, you know, perhaps it would be better to have smaller pickleball courts dotted around the community. Like, I play tennis myself, and getting to Beltaire isn't the most ideal location, you know, for me. I would imagine for lots of communities, it would be nice to have something a bit closer, and I'm sure the cost would be a lot, lot less. I mean, this is, this is our money, this is taxpayers' money that, that you're talking about. So, you know, if you're talking you know, 10 million for the first stage and then who knows what for the next stage. You know, that is an awful lot of money that you're playing with and there are some serious problems going on in our community. Like, as I said before, with infrastructure, you know, we should, we should be looking at how you spend that money and as much as a sports person I am, I think you really need to consider what, what you're doing with that, that vast sum of money and think, think very carefully of better ways to spend it. And as I say, I think smaller localized projects, giving communities a, a little central thing. It's, it's like with, this, with the town center thing going on. It's like there's going to have this high density housing and originally there, was gonna be, there were going to be shops and things and now, now there's going to be nothing. You know, you need a focus for each community otherwise it just becomes a nothingness and you know, there's pressure on, on the little services there are. So that's all I'd like to say. Thank you. Thank you for your comments, sir. Any other speaker? Uh, Mr. Morton, $17 million. You heard that someplace? No, I've not heard $17 million. Uh, the presentation, the initial presentation last week puts it a little over $5 million. I don't have the exact number in front of me. Um, and a mix of recreation impact fees um, and park, park dollars. There was, a, there was a pie chart shown, which I don't have, but it's nowhere near $17 million. Um, I'm not aware of Flagler building any, I don't know if you're talking Flagler Beach or Flagler County building pickleball courts. I'm not aware of any courts that for that went for 100,000 I just can't answer that one as far as town center there is a retail and entertainment district that is planned and is in review and is coming has always been planned to become additionally with two universities that are uh, locating I think there's about 300 students in the first phase uh, between the two um, and, and um, again that's an estimate till I get the final numbers from UNF so um, town center is is developing uh, the plan as far as I'm you know understanding is it lagging Time-wise, I think everybody did after the recession, but there are uh, improvements happening in town center. Uh, for posterity, uh, Mr. Mayor, if you don't mind, um, Mr. Morton, these are non-general fund dollars, so the dollars that we're talking about allocating for this racket facility aren't dollars that we could otherwise pour concrete for on the other side of town or th things of that nature. These are dollars that are tied specifically to expenditures that have to be spent on, for instance, park and recreation impact fees. 
Um, so just for posterity, if you don't mind, just reiterating that, that these aren't dollars that we're taking away from other general fund projects to make this happen. Um, excuse me, Mr. Mayor, I just have a question for Mr. Morton. We're the 5.6 million on the racquetball, pickleball thing, that's phase one, correct, Mr. Morton? There is a phase two, is there not? I, I, there's a possibility for additional conceptual plans. The actual only phase we have in front of us that I'm aware of outside of the master plan, and if that's what the gentleman is referring to, then I was not tracking that conversation. Um, but yes, you are correct. There could be additional phasing. Uh, what we're dealing with today, and that's that's where my confusion is, I guess, okay. is this what is actually proposed uh, today. And And we don't have an estimate yet on what phase two would be. Is that correct, or do we? I, I don't know. I'd have to check with uh, capital. I mean, I'm sure they've probably wagged at something by this point, and that's probably where the number's coming from. Hey, um, that, that's what I'm yeah, curious yeah, about. Yeah. So let me, let me connect and those dots and get back to Mr. Martin and the council. Again, what I thought we were discussing, and, and I apologize, uh, was what, what, what is coming back to council, which is that initial you know, construction phase. To your point, uh, Vice Mayor, we showed the pie chart. I, I don't think we have it ready to pull up today uh, with the various funding sources, the dollar, um, you know, where the different impact dollars will come in. There was that original transfer early on from the Ralph Carter money um, and you know, diff different sources that were putting that first phase of the project together. And these impact fees um, collected from, I, I assume, developers, builders, um, which they pass on to homeowners, obviously, in their final sales price. These could be used for other items for park and recreation. I mean, we have some leeway with how we use them, correct? Correct. And they could actually even be returned to the developers and then passed back to the homeowners, the purchasers, if we didn't spend them. There's a time frame there, correct? There's a time frame that Bill could uh, uh, educate us on. I, I'm not aware of a mechanism or that a uh, builder would ever return those to homeowners. I don't know if that's ever occurred in uh, the uh, history of the country, but uh, anywhere impact fee dollars are, are being spent. And I, you'd have to ask uh, our attorney, I don't know if he's prepared to well, discuss if, the if there, of impact if fee the, dollars. If the funds, the statutes have been amended and, and such that if, if impact fees are not timely, as defined in the statute, expended for the purposes for which they're allowed in the statutes, then they are to be refunded to to those into those uh, entities that have paid the impact fees. Um, there is nothing in the statute. There's nothing that we would the city would be able to do if there was such a refund to say, okay, we're giving you ten dollars. You've got to return it to the buyers of your homes or your projects or your commercial buildings. That would be it. Would, it would go back to the entities that that paid the impact fees. The, the builders, developers, Correct. whoever. Correct, exactly. But it would, there would be a tie-in is what I think it's important to understand. It's not like legally the, either the state or the county or the city, no local government can say to those builders when they get the refunds, you're going to give this back as a refund to your... But, to but your it would go back to, to private enterprise, if nothing else. It would. It would yeah. what, what does timely mean? I'm confused about that. Well, it means is that within, I, I, and, I, and, I, and I have to go back to the statute, but I believe it's around five to seven years that, that the monies have to be spent from the time that they are received. Uh, uh, they just can't be kept on the books forever. No. And that's why all local governments, you know, they tickle the, the receipt of these funds and, then, and they start the process of creating uh, plans like the city of Palm Coast has for, for projects. And, and again, I think it's important to, for purposes for the for the council and the, the, the public to understand that, that impact fees can only be used for new projects. You can't use impact fees just to maintain existing projects. You have to you have to expand. In other words, you have to expand your facilities with impact fees. It has to be something new. We wouldn't just be able to resurface the tennis courts. We've got to build something new. That's what the statutes require. Or return the money. Right. Exactly. Okay, thanks. All right. <coughs> Public participation. We don't have any other speakers. Anybody out there? No. Let's move on to the next uh, item, which is discussion by city council on matters not on the agenda. We can start to my left. I have nothing today. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Uh, I have a question for, well, more for the attorney to explain to people. This is a question I get. <coughs> so when a developer brings a project out here and Everything, there's no complaints about it. Um, everything uh, is okay. And we were, if the council were not to vote for it, what would happen? Well, okay, that, that's a, 
That's a big question. It's a big question. I'll try to answer it in a in a It's in kind a, of just saying if, if we were to vote against something and everything was right, yeah, we and would that, get that's, sued. that's probably a better way to say it. I mean, our land development code, the city's land development code, like any other local government, has standards that apply to a landowner who wants to come in and do something to build something on their property, whether it's a commercial building or a subdivision or a duplex or a single family home. They apply. And then our land development code says, okay, if you're, if, if, if you're going to get that permit, if you're going to get that development order, that's the word that, that the statute uses, if you're going to get that development order, you have to meet these standards. And then there's a public part of it. That, you know, all of that which I've described so far is administrative, it's executive. There's a whole bunch of steps that a developer goes through, meeting with staff, meeting with uh, stormwater, meeting with utilities, meeting with fire rescue, to, u meeting with the school district to make sure that that we're not creating an impact that, that our systems can't absorb, if you will. But then there's a very important step, which is the public step. And that's where, and it doesn't apply to everything, but like this, this afternoon, this, excuse me, this morning, we had two public hearings. They were in the nature of quasi-judicial for some rezonings. And our land development code, as well as the Florida statutes, require that the public have an opportunity to, to, to hear what's happening to their community. Now, to your point, because there are legal standards that, are, that apply, not just in our land development code and our comprehensive plan also, but also general guidelines in the, in the case law and, and the statutes that apply, this, these are quasi-judicial hearings. That means that you're, you're sitting up here kind of like a court kind of sort of quasi-judicial. That means that unless there are, unless there is competent substantial evidence, that's the, the specific words that are being used by the courts, for this council as a jury, if you will, that you find that somehow that applicant doesn't meet the standards, then the courts say, and the law says, that they're legally entitled, they being the developer or the applicant, to receive that development order. So that's why we have these public hearings, is to give the public and the applicant the opportunity to present to you facts, testimony, evidence, substantial competent evidence, to make sure the staff is correct when it submits to you this matter, which is an application for your consideration and approval, and staff will make a recommendation or not that the application complies with the standards and meets all the tests for the rezoning, or for the replatting, or for the variance, or whatever whatever is being requested for land development. But to your point, if if the if there's no evidence, if there's no substantial competent evidence to allow any quasi-judicial body to decline to deny an application for for a development order, then there will be a legal challenge, and the appellate courts can find that there was no competent substantial evidence to support your denial and they will reverse the decision and it'll come back to this body or any other body that you know in that litigation with direction to approve the development order happens a lot uh it's just uh thank you for explaining that uh a lot of people think it's just as easy as saying no with just because we feel like it it doesn't work that way well if if this council and, and, you know, that's one of my jobs, is to make sure that I listen during these hearings and review, and review the record, and part of the record is the staff report and all of the exhibits, as well as whatever evidence you receive at these quasi-judicial hearings, to make sure that there is substantial competent evidence to support whatever decision that this council makes. Because my, my job is to try to make sure that, that you don't face the appeal, that you don't have to spend limited public resources in a challenge to a decision, the quasi-judicial quasi -judicial decision that you make at the end of these public hearings. Well, I hope the people that are listening today understand that when uh, developments are brought up, uh, this is, this, all these factors come into when we uh, vote on it. Thank you. Uh, on that same topic, Bill, if you could just possibly even explain a little more detail of the rights that developers do have, unique rights in the state of Florida? Well, there's, boy, that, again, that's one of those, those general... Just in a nutshell. Yeah. I, I understand, I mean, but I just want the, the, the public to... The thing is, is that 
if, if a local government inappropriately and without basis, legal or factual basis, denies uh, a property owner's rights that they have to do something with their property, 